If you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Genesis 17, um, which, just on a note, I always talk about the kids leaving. Um, Lindsay and I we got the pleasure to go to the, the Acts 29 lead pastor's retreat this last week in, in Long Beach, California, and it was amazing that every conversation that we had with people from all over the world, a lot of different states, that we have as many kids as almost every other person that we talk to, even churches that are twice our size. So it's kind of crazy. So there's a reason it's crazy that we see all these kids because not everyone gets to experience that. We, one of the last conversations we had was with a couple that run about 200 people every week and they have the same number of kids as we do. And I'm like, and then we tell them we do it with five volunteers and they think we're crazy, but it works. So, but it works because y'all put so much into it. But it was, it was good to go. And I'm excited about today because we really get to talk about really just what, really what draws our heart's affections. Like what, what draws us to worship here. And, and so think about that as, and, and answer this question is, why do you follow Christ? If you're a believer, you're here and you understand, you've submitted your life to Christ, why? Like what was it about that message that, that all of a sudden that God used to draw your heart to him. What, what was it? Because if, if we're honest, our, our desires are what determine everything that we do. And, and you, can look at, you can look back at your life or you can look forward and it's you, all desire is everything. What do we desire to do, be, provide for ourselves, our affections, all of that happens and it just it pushes us into our life. And in fact, there's a, now Dane Ortland. he wrote a book and basically chronicling Jonathan Edwards, and he said it this way, said that we can only do what we delight to do. Whether that's quietly sending a check to a family in need or viewing pornography in the darkness of a solitary dorm room. And I just love the way that, that grasp, and if you don't know Jonathan Edwards, the, the pastor, the, considered the greatest American pastor possibly, um, his, his whole thing that he always brought back was these religious affections. And so that's how he was kind of encapsulating that Ortland was, just talking about that we always and can only do what we delight to do. That if we make choices, it's all based out of a desire born within our hearts. And so as we look at this text today, we're going to see why then we should have our heart's desires turned towards Christ, turned towards God. And then if you haven't ever put yourself in that, if you haven't ever submitted your life, then it's kind of a way to show why you're safe in doing so. Like why your affections are okay, your desires. Because often so many of us have placed our affections in things and been hurt, right? That we've had stuff call us back to that. So if you will follow along, we're going to read um, the, the first 20 or so verses of Genesis 17. And then we will... Um, just unpack that further. So in Genesis 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into the nations. And kings shall come to you and I will establish my covenant between 
me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be to your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as far as... As Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to this woman, who is a hundred, this man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, and behold, I've blessed him, and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. If you will pray with me, to ask the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, I just pray that as we open your word, God, that our hearts would be receptive. I just pray that, that we would see your truth. God, we would be reassured that our hearts' affections would be stirred towards you today because of this great covenant that you've made with Abraham. God, that we would be able to trace that promise through Christ to ourselves and that our hearts would be captivated by your grace and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so when, you, when, you, when we look at this, this passage, it, it's hard. And one thing that I'm, I'm trying to do, I don't know if you've heard this a lot, there's some odd elements in there that frankly we don't talk about. Like you have to deal with stuff, circumcision, you have to talk about it. And we don't like to talk about it because it's weird, right? We just don't. But we have to talk about that because we see in this passage this amazing, this amazing revelation that we get about who God is and as a result who we are. That, that this is one of those chapters that should stir our affections because we see God telling us who He is and what He's going to do. That's what, this is such an amazing story about it. And the first thing that we need to understand as we start looking at how our heart's affection should be drawn towards God or placed in Him, if they're rightly placed, we see that there's a revelation of God. If you look at that very first verse, in 17 verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. 
And right there what we see in that is that this is the first time that God refers to himself as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai, if you want the translation. It makes me think of the old, I think it was Sandy Patty, if you've been in Christian world for a while, the song. I can't help but sing it in my mind. But this is the God Almighty. And what we see in that, the, the El Shaddai name, is that God is the all-sufficient one. Right? He is saying that you're 99 years old, I've appeared to you, I am the God that's sufficient. I am the one that's sufficient in everything. And it's an amazing amazing revelation because we immediately have to ask ourselves then why is he saying that now why why is it that God is saying I am the one that's sufficient I am God Almighty why is that now like wouldn't that been what you lead to when you called Abram out of his other life right like hey you're going to be a sojourner and he waits till now to say I'm God I'm sufficient but the reason is is because it was necessary for what he was about to do. Remember, Abram's 99, and he just gets told that, hey, you're going to have a son. Finally, it's going to happen. Like he's kinda, you kind of have the feeling that God's been leading him on a little bit, and now all of a sudden it's like, no, here, you're going to have this. And so he, he uses this name. God reveals to himself as the all-sufficient one because he's about to tell Abraham, Abram that I'm going to give you a son. Like I'm sufficient to do this. Like if he had just led in normal terms, like he's been communicating with Abraham, it could have been easy and understandable for Abraham to kind of be, ah, you know, I've heard this before, right? But now there's something different. God's not saying, hey, I've just called you. He's saying, no, I'm the one that's sufficient to do what I'm about to tell you to do. He says that they had to know what was going on. And, and so when we look at that, we can immediately trace that to ourselves, is that, that God comes to us exactly the way we need him to. So what happens here, he needs to be sufficient, that God draws himself to us, we're we're drawn to him in the direct way that we need him to be. It was necessary to be the sufficient one for what's about to happen, because how is this going to happen? You read later, Abraham laughs about it, right? I I laugh when he says it, right? And and, in verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, right? He's like, you got to be kidding me, right? Maybe it would have been worse if God wouldn't have been I'm the sufficient one to do this. I'm sufficient to do this. And so it's an easy application. It's easy to bring this into our life and say that how do you need God now? What's happening in your life? Where your heart, where, where's your heart being captivated away from him that you can go to him through his word and see where he meets you in that need? He comes to us in the ways we need him. He comes to us exactly how we need and right now some of you might just need this that he is sufficient to do what he's called you to do he's sufficient to do what he says he's going to do and then so how do you need him now know that that's how he comes to you and then ask yourself do you actually believe that right do you actually believe that we look at this i am the god almighty half of the first verse we can stop and ask yourself do you actually believe that he's sufficient to do what he's saying Can you read the rest of Scripture, go to the New Testament, see what Christ has called us to, see how the Apostle Paul and and Peter and the first church and all these writers in the New Testament call us to live our life. Do you believe that he's sufficient to carry that out in you? Because that will determine everything. And when we look at this text, God proves that he's sufficient. He proves he's sufficient. First, we look at his statements. He, He says, I will. You see that? If you notice that as I was reading, I will, if I, if I counted correctly, there's 11 times that God says, I will. He says it in verse 6, 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, I will give to you, and then I will be their God. Down in verse 16, I will bless her, talking about Sarah. I will give you a son. I will bless her again. Verse 19, I will establish my covenant, talking about with Isaac. In verse 20, I will make him a great nation, talking about Ishmael. In verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Over and over again, God's the one saying, I will. There's never a point in this that any action is determined by anyone but God. Did you see that? So he's the f- sufficient one. Why? Because he's the one that I will do this. And now what's amazing is now we can look back. We have the benefit of looking back and see that God did all these things. So see, we're without excuse in a, in, a, in a little bit of this because God's telling Abraham now that he's changed his name that I will do all these things. I'm the one that's going to carry it out. I'm sufficient to do this. I will do all these things. And now we fast forward to our time. We can look back and say that God did that. We can look at all of these things and we can see that God didn't say I will and then not deliver. He was sufficient to do it because we've seen that it's been done. And there's also stuff that he has already done. In verse 5, he says, I have made you a father in a multitude of nations. It's kind of interesting because he wasn't a father yet, right? He's just saying that you're going to, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. Why? Because I have made you a father. It's already happened. And then later in verse 20, he talks about Ishmael, that I've heard you. He heard Abraham talking about Ishmael and wanting him to be blessed. He said, I've blessed him. So God is the God that's going to do stuff because he is sufficient to do it. I will do these things. And he's also the God that's already acting. I have. And that's what we can look at in all of these statements that he's sufficient to do what he says he's going to do. This is one of the the few places that you can look and just see just one simple passage and so many actions of God sovereignly, sufficiently acting in the lives of his people. And that should stir our heart, right? That should stir your heart if you're ever figuring out, is, is God absent like this some of you might be in the sense that God just doesn't seem real right that we you come to here you come to worship you maybe you have you're reading scripture and the week and just like he's never here he's he's absent right and it's okay if you get in that but then you have to ask yourself why do you feel that way and what's interesting when we look at this passage that how old is Abraham 99 if you look at the verse previous to this the last verse of chapter 16 he's 86 Right, so Hagar, Hagar, Hagar bore Ishmael. He was 86 years old, and now all of a sudden he's 99. So 13 years have passed. He's got a little crazy teenager running around. Right, Ishmael, the one that they thought they were going to be able to do. Which, on a side note, that we didn't talk about this this last week. It, there's one theme that we didn't really talk about in verse in, in chapter 16 that comes out right now is that, that any sort of your own idea in, in sexual deviation doesn't ever accomplish what you want it to. And you see that? That's a, it's a huge theme in this. And so often we, we forget that in our culture because our culture says that everything is okay. Whatever you feel like doing, it's okay. And, and chapter 16 is a clear indicator that even your best intentions to, to gain something apart from God as far as sexual relationships, it doesn't work. It didn't get them what it wanted. In fact, it probably caused more problems, which we'll see later. But Abraham, he's 99 years old. So why the 13-year wait? All right, why, did, why did God wait here? And, and, and sometimes if you ever get to those situations where you're looking in Scripture and you're like, what in the world? Think about why there's a time gap. What was God doing in that 13 years? Was he all of a sudden, was he not capable of doing anything? No. So why? I like to think that it's 
it took that long for Abraham and Sarah to be ready for it, right? They had just, all of chapter 16 is them trying to accomplish what God is sufficient to accomplish. And so I, I like to think that that gap in between is God letting them die to themselves. Like how long did it take them to get over the fact that they were trying to do this, but they couldn't? And so ask yourself now, does God seem absent to you because you're the one that's trying to be sufficient to accomplishing everything in your life instead of him? You see that so often we try to do the things that God can do and sufficient to do in our lives, and then we get mad because he's not there. The whole time, we're the ones getting in his way. Right? We set ourselves up with relationships that are unhealthy that we think are going to give us something that we can only find in God. And we rationalize stuff away. And then we blame God because he's not active when we're the ones that are never stopping to let him be sufficient. And that was something that, that this week in listening to the speakers that, that I was, was convicted in and, and, and a lot of you talk to these church planters and, and as a church planter, a pastor, I have a tendency to think of all the, the aspects that I wish were better, right? And if you've ever done anything, you're like, you think of the things that aren't like you would want it to be. And so we go to these places and we see people from all over. And the first night we sat down at dinner and this guy sat down next to us. His name was Philip and he's from Sheffield, England. So it was fun just to talk because he has a cool accent, right? And you can engage in that. But he was asking about our church, and then he's not a church planner. He was just there as part of another part with Acts 29. And I, and I said, you know, well, we average about 40 adults. You know, we're kind of a small church, something like that. And he was like, that's not small where I come from. And I'm like, oh, point taken. Like, sorry, right? Because I think of all the negative aspects instead of looking at what God's done in our life. And so often we do that individually also. That we, we complain that God's not working our life because we're not stopping to actually see what he's already done. We're not stopping enough. We're trying to be the ones sufficient in giving ourselves happiness and comfort through relationships, emotionally and physically. We need to sit back and look at the fact that we can now see all these I will statements, all these things that God is saying here that I'm sufficient to do, and we can trace those through Christ to ourself that God has done what he said he was going to do. Now, if you look at chapter 17, and you take that to Christ, in Christ, God has done everything that he said he would do with Abraham. And now we're recipients of that same promise. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. So maybe God seems absent in your life right now because you're not stopping to let him be present. Maybe, we're, maybe you're stuck in chapter 16 trying to accomplish everything that you thought you can help God with instead of stepping into this first part of chapter 17 and realizing that he is God Almighty, the sufficient one to do all that he's called us to do. All that he needs to be done. And that's a revelation of who God is. He is the sufficient one. And to me, that's the best name that God has. There's plenty of names. We're going to trace all those through the Old Testament and how God names himself. To me, this is the best one. He's sufficient. Because that means it doesn't matter what anything else says. He's able to carry that out. He is sufficient to do what he's called us to do. He's sufficient to provide for us. He's sufficient to fulfill his promise when so often the people that we know fell on their promises. But then what happens with revelation is you get to responsibility. And this is where we're going, ah, right? Like if I could just stay there, God's sufficient and I'm good, then you can just kind of camp out there. It's exciting, right? Ah, sweet. I can just let him do it. But there's responsibility that's bred by revelation. 
Then just look at the next part of verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram said what? I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, sufficient one. And then what? Walk before me and be blameless. Well, that's easy, right? Right? I'm like, wait a second. He's sufficient to do everything. And so now we see this responsibility. And really two aspects of that responsibility. First, walk before Simply walk before. What we're talking about in that is just knowing that God has seen you. We talked about that last week. When we talked about Hagar saying that surely this is the one that sees me. And walking before the Lord is an acknowledgement that as you live your life, He already sees you. You're walking before Him. You're not behind Him where He can't see. It's that idea that you're aware that He is watching, that He knows, and that He sees you. That there's nothing outside of his vision in your life. And so, because he is sufficient, walk before him. Understand that he knows that. What we've been called to do, that walk before him. And that's really the easy part. It's easy to, okay, I can live my life knowing that he sees me. Maybe you can find some comfort in that. I might scare you with that, if we're honest. Like, he sees everything. Yeah. He knows the thoughts. That makes it worse, right? But... Walking in him, that's the easy part. Because then look what the next part is. The next, aspect, the next aspect of our responsibility is to be blameless. To be perfect. And when we look at that and we see this, we realize that we can't do that. Right? And so, from the start, he's saying, I am the God Almighty, I'm sufficient, walk before me, acknowledge that I know everything about you, that I can see all things and be blameless. Be perfect. Well, it's like, well, what kind of God is that that sets us up to do something that he knows we'll fail at? Right? And so what we need to do is we need to take that into a different understanding, not that we will obtain perfection, but that we should strive to have the character and integrity that match that. Acknowledging that when we walk before him, he'll, he'll see the places that we fail to do that, but we should still strive for that. There's a, a guy named Alex, Alexander McLaren. He's a, a Scottish Baptist Scottish pastor, um, I believe he passed away in like 1910, something like that. And, and he said this, commenting on this verse, he said, It is more blessed to be smitten with the longing to win the unwon than to stagnate in ignoble contentment with partial attainments. And I'm like, what in the world did he just say, right? You read that and you're like, and? Right? You could just agree because you don't know what it says. But thankfully, he understands that there's people like us that don't get what he's saying. And then he says it, he kind of brings it down, I like to think, brings it down to my level. And he says, it's better to climb with faces turned upwards to the inaccessible peak than to lie at ease in the fat valley. I'm like, okay, I get that. Like, just because you can't get there doesn't mean you shouldn't climb. And so that's exactly what we need to see in this verse, that, that when we're called to live a blameless life, it's not that we're going to obtain it, but by, because we can't obtain it doesn't mean that we just quit. We should strive for the integrity that will reflect that we're walking before him blameless. That we should have our faces turned upwards, even though it's inaccessible to be there. But it's better to strive for that, knowing that all the while we can't get there by ourselves than to not even try. And so then we have to ask ourselves, so how do you do that, right? How do you, how do you, how do you strive for something you can't obtain? How do, you, how do you climb to the inaccessible peak when you're not able to? And, and really there's three ways that I can think of to do this. And, and it starts just with, a, I just want a, another quote. Sorry, I've got a lot of quotes today because there's some good stuff. But Warren Wiersbe said, The secret to a perfect walk with God 
So what we're talking about, right, this blameless walk with God, the secret to a perfect walk with God is personal worship with God. And so kind of in that idea that, that we should still strive to obtain, that God said he's the sufficient one, so we should walk before him, be blameless. That's our responsibility because of the revelation of who God is, that he's sufficient, so we should walk in that before him, knowing that. How can we do that? Really, there's three ways. First is to have purposeful study of God's word. You're going to know his word. If you're going to be able to strive for that, you have to purposefully study his word. And see, here's where a lot of people get out and they're like, I don't have time to do that. And that's just a lie and you're lazy. I tell myself that all the time. And then I watch shows on Netflix, right? Then I waste time on Facebook. Now if we want to be caught up with the, the normal age, we chase stupid Pokemon, right? <laughs> no offense to the people in here that are probably trying to catch them now, right? But that's just what happens, Right? We say we don't have time, but we can, we can do everything. He, he proved it to you, right? Got you. But we can do everything that we choose to do. Remember, it goes back to we're going to do what we delight to do. And so purposeful study, you have time to do it. Will you allow yourself to do it? Will you meditate on his word? Because we get stuck in this responsibility and say, I can't do it. And so we just quit without purposely studying his word to show us how we can do that to draw us back to our heart's affections to knowing Him because He's given us the truth. Another way is to be persistent in prayer. Right? So often we think God's absent, yet we don't talk to Him until we need Him. Right? It's like, oh, everything went bad, so now I'm going to pray. Well, why not pray in the good times? Have an ongoing relationship, getting to know Him, talk to Him, seek after Him in persistent prayer with purposeful study so that you can then start climbing higher and higher on that inaccessible peak. That we can strive to know him deeper and deeper as we get to know him better, as we understand his truth, meditate on it. And then that leads to the third way that we can show this responsibility and strive is to have passionate praise. We actually get that pretty good. It's amazing, and I love getting to tell the story that, that we don't have a consistent regular worship leader Yet we sing, right? It blows people's minds. When I talk to guys, I'm like, we haven't had, like, I think maybe twice we've had the same worship leader two weeks in a row since January. Yet we sing. You worship, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Because that's what we have to do. We have to purposely study God's word. We have to be persistent in prayer. And then we need to be passionate in our praise. Because if we understand his truth, if we take that into our heart and we pray and we know who he is, that's going to overflow into praise. Because we have to, because we see that we don't deserve this. Abram didn't deserve this. He called him out for no reason other than to bring glory to his name, and that leads us to praise. And so the secret to that walk, as Wiersbe says, is just personal worship. And that's passionate in our praise to God. That's singing, and it's singing off-key if you can. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's being people of prayer. And that's something that I was convicted of all week, that we don't pray enough as a church. So we're going to start filtering in that. Like I heard that. I had to repent of that. But we don't need to do that individually. We need to do that corporately. And that falls onto my responsibility. So we're going to do that more. So when you see that come up, you know why. 
and then you should be there just to pray, not to be entertained. And I, and I, I, I get that, that we don't do stuff to entertain, but we want to be people of prayer. We want to be people purposefully studying God's Word. That's why we're going to start our community groups again in the fall and have some other discipleship things because we want to be purposeful in what we do because we have a responsibility because who God is in our lives. And that falls individually and that falls corporately. And we have that responsibility because the final thing that we see is that we have a relationship. Right? We have a relationship. And you see that really the rest of the chapter, we've kind of hung out in verse 1 for the most part, but really the rest of the chapter is, is God talking about the relationship that he's going to have with Abraham and us too. And so when we look at that, we realize that this relationship wasn't ever sought by Abraham, right? When he called him, he just says, go out of where you are. Abram didn't say, hey, some people here are bothering me. I need to move. I need to change my scenery. So can I follow you? No, God just said, hey, here you are. I'm calling you out of that. So it was a relationship that was unsought on Abraham's part. It's unsought on our part, but yet we have a God that pursues us. We have a God that pursues us. It's all God's actions, the all I will. But then notice how he describes this. Look how, if we look through this chapter, starting in verse 2, look at how God, throughout the whole verses that we read, how he describes this relationship. Verse 2, that I may make what? My covenant. In verse 4, behold, my covenant is with you. In verse 7, I'll establish what? My covenant. In verse 9, you shall keep my covenant. So shall my covenant, in verse 13. In verse 14, he has broken my covenant. And you go down to verse 19, talking about Isaac. I'll establish my covenant. In verse 21 again, I'll establish my covenant. You notice that a covenant, it's two people in that, yet it's God's covenant. He's the one that's doing everything. And we talked about that in chapter 15, when God was the one that went through the two, he cut the animals in half, and God was the one that went through that. It's his covenant. So this entire time when we look at this relationship that, that fuels our responsibility because of the revelation of God, we realize that it's God's covenant. And there's two aspects of that relationship that affect the life of Abraham, that affect our life as a result. The first is a change in identity. When we have this relationship, it's what Paul talks about, that, that in Christ we're a new creation, this change in identity. And that's what we see here in in this chapter. Look at verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And everyone's thankful to that now because now we can quit trying to think Abram, Abraham. You don't have to mess it up anymore. Just say Abraham, right? But why? Why is his name Abraham? Because his identity changed because no longer is he just a father, Abram, but he's Abraham, a father of a multitude. God just expanded that when he said, my covenant he changed his name because now he's a father of a multitude, not just father. He changed the meaning of his name, changed the trajectory of his life. Why? Because God was calling him to a relationship with himself, saying, this is my covenant before you. And then we get Sarah, verse 16, right? And he tells him, in verse 15, as Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her moreover. See, the difference in the meaning there, there there's a lot of talk that this one's a little harder like, what's the difference? But Sarah means princess. And so it makes sense that he, she's called princess now because she will be the father or the mother of kings, right? That those that will fat pass from her, she will become nations, kings of people shall come from her. 
So her identity was completely changed. And that's when Abraham falls on his face, right? It's kind of funny. Right? He's like, seriously? This is what's going to happen. Like, we've already got a kid. Why can't we use him? But no. Why? Because it's God's covenant. He's the one that establishes the terms. He's the one that calls people and pursues people into that relationship. So their change in their identity fit God's purpose, just as it does in our life. When he calls us to it, when he calls us to himself, when we become in relation with him through Christ now, the old is gone, the new has come, because he calls us to his calling. He gives us gifts. His Spirit has gifted us that fits His purpose for bringing glory to His name to expand His kingdom through our lives everywhere we live it. Our identity has changed because it fits God's purpose now. And He's called us into His covenant, to His people, through Christ. And then the other aspect that we need to talk about is the sign of the relationship. And that's where we always get odd because you have to talk about circumcision. We don't like talking about that. It's a weird conversation. While I'm here at the school... When I moved to the elementary school, the first thing that I got voluntold to do, like the first week that I got here, it was like, hey, by the way, when the fifth grades get the puberty talk, it's nice to have a guy, right? That's what it was, and I was like, oh, I get it now, right? And so I had to, but what's interesting is so many people in our culture, that's the first time that they ever hear about circumcision. And I hear parents talk about some parents that I know that have, that, that have had the talk, that's the thing that all the kids talk about. I'm like, what? What is that? Right? Because we don't talk about it. But we need to understand what's happening here because it's an amazing revelation of what God's doing and the sign that he's given to. Right? The first thing we need to understand about this is, is this not, this was, circumcision is not invented right here. Genesis 17 didn't create it. It happened in other cultures. Other people were already doing it. And it was, it was a sign of removing the barrier to fruitfulness. It happened either at puberty or before marriage. And so what circumcision, what God did was he retooled this act that other people were doing and showed how he was going to be the one that was doing that. So when God tells Abram, Abraham that he was going to give him the sign of circumcision, it's a sign of removing of the barrier of fruitfulness. And just like all these other people do this at certain times to show that now all of a sudden these men are able to be fruitful adults, you're going to be a fruitful father of nations. And what's amazing about that sign, it's God symbolically saying, I'm going to remove that blockage of fruitfulness. It becomes a sign of the promise because now all of a sudden, Abraham is fruitful. But he's 99. That's what's funny about it, right? It's like, what does it matter now? Like, that's going to help, right? At this point, what's the point? Right? But it's because God's saying that I'm going to do this. Even so much so, when we look at verse 12, look at verse 12. This is why we know it's a symbolic sign, because he who is eight days old among you shall be certain. Why? Because this is God symbolically saying those berries of fruitfulness are going to be taken away. If it would have continued and been just at purity before marriage, and you could say that it was the circumcision that was allowing this, but God's saying, no, it's symbolically here, eight days old, an unwilling child, because that's going to be my sign that you are fruitful because of me. And what's seeing this? And, and when we look at that, it's not something, man, that's weird. That's why it's such an amazing sign. So God's saying, even though in your old age, all those barriers of fruitfulness are removed, because in me you'll be a father of a multitude. Completely changed his identity, and it gave him a sign that then goes through. And so then when you look at this, you're like, okay, that's great. How does that affect me, right? And that you're always, always ask that, well, what now? 
So what? Well, how does that affect me? What's cool about this story is we see two types of descendants from Abraham. And as we kind of finish up, we're going to end in this thought. The two types of descendants. First is physical. If you look back on, and it's the way, the way God has described his promise to Abraham. If you look back in chapter 13, 16, this is one of the first times that he talks about the covenant. In, verse, in chapter 13, verse 16, God says, I will, again, an I will statement, make your offspring, what, as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. That's like a physical, worldly descendants. We see that. And then we see in chapter 17, that's going to happen through Isaac, the child of the promise, the one that's brought through the covenant. And so we see that Abraham has one type of descendant. They're physical descendants. They're from the child of the promise, the one that's promised. That He says here in chapter 17 that you're going to have this time next year. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. And so we see then the line of starting of the physical descendants of Abraham. There's a physical line. It's, they're like the dust of the earth. But also, if we look at this, if you look in verse 15, I mean chapter 15, excuse me, look in chap- chapter 15, verse 5. Again, this is when God's reminding Abraham what he's going to do, but he says it a little different. And he brought him outside. And what? And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Now all of a sudden it's not this earthly descendant, but it's a heavenly one. And that's where we come in. That's what makes this relationship such an amazing thing is because now we see that reflecting the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And if you want, you can turn. I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this. For in verse 26 of chapter 3, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we're, we're saved. We're sons of God. We're baptized in Christ. We're united with Christ is what he's saying. And then in verse 28, there's an amazing depiction of the gospel and how we should proceed socially. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male nor female. They're all one in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, united with him, we are all one people. We're spiritual descendants of Abraham. Because in verse 29 of Galatians 3, Paul says, And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that was given in Genesis 17, Genesis 15, Genesis 13, all this saying this is what's going to happen. And so Paul's connecting all those dots and bringing it forward to us that in Christ we're descendants of Abraham. Not physical descendants, but we're spiritual, that we can be numbered like the stars. And so it's in Christ. So when we look at this relationship, we know that we were pursued by God because he sent his son to die for us. That's an amazing thing, and that should stir your heart, right? Think about a time, if you've had one, where you didn't deserve something, and you got it anyways. Did it make you excited, right? Like, man, you might have even messed something up, and then someone doesn't realize it, so they give you what you don't deserve, and you're like, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's exactly what's happening here, is we've been pursued and given something that we didn't deserve, that's what's so amazing about Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to read part of that and then we'll be done. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writing says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. So that we were dead. There's no if you were and there's no halfway dead. Dead is dead. And in verse 3 it says, Among 
whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were children by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So our heart's desire and our delights that we were doing were all of the flesh, of the world. We were sons of disobedience. And then in verse 4, the best two words of this chapter of the gospel story, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had, which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right there, that's something that we all, you need to highlight, an exclamation point, but God. And see, so what we see in that is this idea that the relationship that we didn't deserve, we were pursued by God. While we were in that, we didn't fix ourselves. And he's like, well, maybe I could bring him in. And he'd be a good addition to the team. Like, bring in this guy. He's going to produce something for the kingdom. And he says, you were dead. You couldn't offer anything. You were dead. Yet we were called in Christ. We were pursued by Christ. And it's by grace that we've been saved. And then what? And he raised us up with him and seated us with the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So it's in Christ that we have everything. It's in Christ that we gain all of that. That's why in Galatians 3, Paul says that it's in Christ that we're heirs of the promise. And then Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, we were all dead in our trespasses. Abraham had screwed up the promise. He had just tried to have his own child that he could be the promise. And then notice that he reiterates that. Did you see that? Did you catch that after he laughed in, in Genesis 17? Right? And he says, Oh, God. Right? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, he still didn't get it. Right? He just said, your name's going to be your father multitude. And he said, well, maybe it's Ishmael. Why? Because he couldn't believe that at 99 he was going to have a kid. And God says, no, I have a plan. Because he pursued a relationship. And we can trace that all the way through Christ to ourselves. Because in Christ we have been given an inheritance that did not belong to us, yet was given. And if that doesn't stir your heart's desires to seek after him, to purposefully study his word, to be persistent in prayer. If your hearts aren't stirred by the message that you were so messed up that you were dead in his eyes, yet he sent something for you, then I don't know what will. Right? This is the truly the free gift. This is, there's no fine print of the gospel. Our heart's affections should be stirred because we gained something that we didn't get, that we didn't even want. And so think about that. If you've submitted your life to Christ, what was it? Go all the way back to the beginning. What was it that God used to stir your heart? And then that there, that delight, those affections are what propel you to live a Christian life. And if you haven't submitted your life to Christ, that's when you look at it and you think, you know what? I can be safe because here's the only place, here's the only relationship that I have that I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not to gain it. And so our relationship with Christ has been pursued by Him. And we simply submit ourselves to that. We study His Word. We're persistent in prayer. And then we praise. That's why we finish with a song every Sunday. So if you didn't know, that we, we finish in a song so that we can take what we've learned through the word 
and express that in praise. Like that's the beginning of the week. We don't come to be recharged. It's just a continual overflow of understanding the truth. And so we're going to be passionate in our praise, and that's the last thing that we're going to do. And we're going to we proclaim what we've heard through song. And so that's, that's why we do that. And so if you feel like God's alone, you feel like that he's left you alone, and just look and call out to him because he's pursued you. He'll reveal himself exactly how you need him to. You just got to get out of the way. He is the sufficient one. Let's praise him, let's seek after him, and let's worship him alone. Let's pray. Father God, we God, we thank you that that you pursued us when we were unlovable. God, we thank you for your covenant that you've given to Abraham, that he would be a father of a multitude. God, we thank you for the revelation that you are the sufficient one, that you alone are sufficient to do what you've planned to do to uphold your covenant with us. God, I just pray that that when we see that revelation of you and we hear that revelation that you are sufficient, God, that it would lead us to seek after the responsibility of walking before you blameless, God, that we would not give up because we know that we're incapable, but we would pursue you through earnestly, purposefully studying your word to be persistent in our prayer, that we'd be known as people that were praying consistently persistent for you. God, that our praise would be passionate, not just here in this hour, but throughout our lives. We'd be marked by a passionate praise because of the relationship that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, that we did not deserve, yet he sacrificed so that we might be saved. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.